morning, everybody. <clears throat> Honestly, thought about teaching from the floor this morning just because uh, it's a little more personal, but I guess I'll stay up here. It's good. If, uh, if we haven't met, my name's Jack. I'm one of the elders here at Remedy. Um, glad to be with you. Uh, it's been a while since I preached at Remedy, so um, glad to be back in the book of Haggai. Haggai is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I don't know if it's wrong to like some books more than others in the Bible, because it's all God's Word, but I really have enjoyed the book of Haggai, really over the past several years, studied it many times, taught it a few times, so very grateful that we're able to go through it, and I get a chance to teach through part of it. I want to kind of give you a background, just in case you haven't been here, because we've been going through it, this will be the third week now, um, and I don't want to take the chance that somebody's here for the first time, and you don't know what the book of Haggai is about, because some people don't even realize there's a book called Haggai in the Bible. So if you don't know where it is, you can go ahead and open your Bible up to the book of Haggai. If you don't know where it is, that's totally fine. Your Bible should have a table of contents. That's what it's there for. There's no shame in that. So go ahead and use it. Get a page number. Turn in there. Haggai's a short little book. It's about two chapters long. It's one of the minor prophets. Now, minor doesn't mean minor in message. just means size. So you've got the 12, which are the 12 minor prophets, and they're just smaller in length than Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, some of the other more what are considered the major prophets. Um, give you a little context of where uh, Haggai falls in the history of the nation of Israel. Um, after Solomon, King Solomon, the nation splits, and 10 of the 12 tribes uh, follow one king, and two other tribes follow another king. But the thing is, they're all still God's covenant people, and God's made a covenant promise with them that if they keep the covenant and they're obedient... God would be with them and they will experience his blessing. But if they break the covenant and they walk away from God, they will experience God's judgment. And what we find is both of these parts of the kingdom that have split off have um, rebelled against God's covenant. And God sends his prophets over and over and over to call them back, to call them to repentance, to call them. We see the kindness and goodness of God in that over and over and over. He's reminding the people, you've walked away, come back. You've walked away, come back. I will bring judgment. They don't turn around, and so God brings judgment. The ten tribes are conquered by Assyria. The two tribes are conquered by Babylon. And so Haggai is what's called a post-exilic prophet. So that means the, the two tribes have been conquered by Babylon. God's raised up a pagan king named Cyrus who really doesn't care anything about God, doesn't worship God, has got other gods. This guy digs deep into his treasury and says, hey, you need to go rebuild God's temple. Just an amazing act of God's sovereignty over everything. And so the people have come back. And what had happened is they got here. What had happened? So what happened is they got back and they're starting to work on the temple. And they lay the foundation. And there's these people in the physical land of Israel that weren't Israelites. Uh, some of them were descendants of people who were uh, intermarried with people who weren't Israelites. Some of them just were um, just pagans. And so they said, hey, look, we want to help build this temple. And the people of Israel who came back said, no, this is what God has told us to do. They said, no, 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 we really want to help. And they said, no, God's given us this command. And so what happens is those people who want to help get angry, and so they start opposing the people who are trying to build. They start trying to keep them from building. They go tattletale on them to the governors and to the king, and they all of these different things to try to stop them from building the temple. And this, this persecution and opposition causes the Israelites to just quit. They just stop. And they just go about their merry way, and the temple's laying there in ruins. And so Haggai is one of the two prophets that God sends at this point in time to tell the people, hey, wake up. 
I brought you out of exile. I have brought you back. I raised up a pagan king to fund this entire project. This is still under his physical dominion right now, and you have his blessing. Why are you listening to these people? Quit worrying about your houses and start worrying about my house. And what God is doing is he's not just saying, as we'll see this morning, just build somewhere. He's calling them to respond in faith and obedience. They have seen who God is. And yet, because of the opposition they faced, they quit caring. and were worried more about their comfort and their own peace and security, they felt. And so God sends Haggai to set them back in motion. And that's where we are. The book of Haggai, it really covers a span of about four months. You get four different times that, that Haggai comes and he speaks to the people. This morning, we're going to be in chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 10. We're going to go all the way to the end of chapter, verse 23. Now, if you were here last week when Joe preached, um, you may say, wait just a minute. Joe didn't finish chapter. He didn't even get into chapter 2. He just finished chapter 1. Um, and so I realized that as Joe was preaching last week, and I thought, wait just a second now. I'm preaching next week, and I'm supposed to be in 210, and that doesn't add up doesn't work here. And so we as the elders got together this week, and what we're going to do is I will, I was originally going to go 10 through 19. I'm going to go 10 through the end of the chapter because the end of the chapter fits in. And then next week, Joe will come and he'll speak on 2, 1 through 9. Uh, What we have is you've got four different times where Haggai speaks to the people, um, oracles, if you will, from God. And they are all interconnected, but they all also kind of stand on their own. So we'll be able to kind of address them in there together. Today we'll do what is labeled by theologians as Oracle 3 and Oracle 4. So you have now going to get two oracles this morning. So here we go. All right, so what I want to do is I want to read Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23, and we'll go from there. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When you came to one heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. And when you came to the wine vat to draw out 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing But from this day on, I will bless you. 
The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, The son of Shealtiel declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your kindness and your mercy towards us. And we thank you that you have given us your spirit. And we ask, Father, that you would now open our eyes to the truth of your word. That if there is sin in our life, you would reveal it, that we might repent. That if we've never trusted the gospel, we might do so. We pray that you would exalt Jesus in this text. We love you and ask it in his name. Amen. In seminary, you have to take all kinds of classes. And one of the classes you have to take is preaching class. And you learn lots of different things in preaching class. But one of the things that I remember from preaching class was when the, the day the professor talked about the power of illustrations... Now, I never quite understood why preachers would tell stories uh, during their sermons. I I was just kind of like, well, why are you telling me a story that has nothing to do with what's in the Bible here? But one of the things they taught, which I think was really good, is to help understand that illustrations, when told right and connected, have a powerful way of helping people to understand and see the meaning and then remember it and then kind of latch on to it. And if you think about it, This is the way God communicates to us in so many ways through his word. How did Jesus teach most of the time? He taught with parables, stories about everyday life, and he would connect it. And so now we remember the stories, and we remember the stories, and we know what they're about because we see the connection that's there. Think about Paul in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. He writes, put on then the full armor of God. And we start thinking, if you've been in church and you've heard about the full armor of God, you may be right now going through all the different parts of the armor of God and you remember what each of them signifies. Or we think like the prophet Isaiah who says that Jesus is going to be the shoot that comes out of the root of Jesse. This picture of a tree that has been chopped down but has a little branch that's coming out that will one day grow into a giant tree. God gives these word pictures all throughout the scriptures. And what they do is they help us to see things and grab on to truth. Well, part of what God's doing here in this passage, I believe, is giving an analogy, a word picture, something that was in their day that they could grasp what God was trying to teach them. So this morning, because of that, what I want to do is I really want to kind of do a couple of things. I just want to kind of Give the analogy, explain the analogy, show how it applied to them, and then hopefully show how it applies to us. Uh, And what I'm talking about is this this question that God asks, okay? So here we are, Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. Um, This happens uh, four months after Haggai first comes on the scene. The first time he goes and he talks to him, what Joe will be talking about next week is two months after that. This is another two months following. So this is four months after they've, he's kind of gotten their attention, gotten them back working on the temple. And God comes on the scene and he asks a question. And this time he asks a question not just to everybody. This is kind of unique because as, as we've seen so far in the book of Haggai, when the questions are asked, they're usually asked to everybody. Zerubbabel, 
Joshua, the high priest, all the people, all of these questions are given to everybody to answer. But this one in particular, Haggai is to go to the priests, and he's going to ask them a couple of questions. But the questions aren't just any questions. They're questions about the law. Now, this makes sense because the priests were the ones who were the keepers and the teachers of the law. They were to know the law, and they were to teach the law. In fact, we see Ezra, one of the priests who who was in captivity, who came back to help lead this event, this rebuilding of the temple. It says in Ezra 7 that he set his heart to know the law, to obey the law, and to teach the law. That's what he was to do as a priest. And so God sends Haggai to the priest, and he asks them these questions. And then they were to answer, and they gave short answers, and they gave correct answers. So the first question was this. Would something that's been made holy transfer its holiness? And so the question is, if there's meat in your garment and you touch something with your garment, does that become holy as well? And we're like, what in the world is going on there? Okay. Well, part of the sacrificial system, part of the things that the priests would do is that as the priests would offer the sacrifices, part of God's provision for them is some of the meat that was in the sacrifice was given to them for them to eat. And so they are either, they're either burning it on the altar or sometimes it was boiled in different places and they would have to transport that and they would put it into their garment to carry it to where it needed to where they could eat it. And then according to Leviticus 6.27, that garment, when they did that, the garment became holy. But if that garment touched anything else, it didn't transfer its holiness. So the question was, if you put bread, stew, whatever, does it, it touches something else, does it become holy? Priest answered, no. They knew that. Check. Good job. One out of one. You're good. So then he asked another question. Would something that's made unholy transfer its unholiness? So the idea here is that if anybody or anything had touched a dead body, it was considered unclean. And there were certain rules and ramifications about what they'd have to do to achieve cleanliness. But if they touched something then anything else they touched would become unclean, according to Numbers 19.22. Anything touched by an unclean person becomes unclean. So God asked this question, and the priests say, yes. So now what we've found is that there's nothing profound or groundbreaking here. This is just, this is run-of-the-mill question, straight up. They could tell you chapter, verse, right where it came from. Why is God asking these questions to these people at this time? And it's when we get into what God's explanation is that we begin to see that answer. So what we see in verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. He's now saying, I'm not just asking you questions about the law as a pop quiz to see whether or not you remembered what you studied a while ago. I'm wanting you to know and understand something. This visual thing that's before you that everybody knows about, I want you to know that this right here is to be teaching you about something. And just as there were two parts, these two questions, there's two parts of the explanation. So God says, so it is with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and with every work of their hands. In other words, just like having the garment and having that garment being holy didn't transfer its holiness, having something holy in their midst wouldn't transfer its holiness to them. We can't take this out of context. This is important as you remember what these people were doing. They were being called back by God to be rebuilding the temple. 
And what God is doing is he is unearthing something that is either something they are saying and thinking or something they're feeling deep down inside that what the point of what God is is he just wants us to build this temple. And if we build this temple, everything's going to be okay. God's just upset because we didn't build his house. So let's just build his house and then it'll be good because we'll have this holy temple that'll be in our midst and it'll make everything good. It'll make everything great. We just get this temple finished and it's gonna like bless us and this temple is gonna be great. And what God is doing is he's calling their attention to help them understand this temple, though good and though it's obedient to build it, the point is not to have a holy thing in your midst. There's something more. And as they're thinking that just having it there was gonna make everything great, God is showing them They need more. They need a lot more. And that's where we get to the second part. Because that's when he asked that question about the uncleanliness. And God says, and so it is with every work of their hands. Verse 14. They're in need of a cleansing. Being near something holy wouldn't make them holy. In fact, their sin had permeated them. Thus, when they had a temple, they would have a place to sacrifice. They would have a place to turn their eyes back to God. But the reality is every one of those sacrifices and that temple itself was not given as an end unto itself. The entire sacrificial system, the entire temple, all of it was to point to something greater. It was a shadow of what was to come. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have been ceased to offer Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the fact of the matter is they could have restored the sacrificial system. But even in restoration of the sacrificial system would have been one more reminder day after day after day with every sacrifice they give that they are a sinful people and they need to be cleansed. And the time they get done offering one sacrifice is just a matter of time before they've got to go get another bull, another goat, another whatever and bring it because they're continually doing something wrong or not doing something right or disobeying, and it wasn't just the people, it was the entire nation. And so there's this continual assault on the senses in sights and sounds and smells of a continual sacrifice having to be made over and over and over the number of bulls and goats and all these animals sacrificed over and over should have just overwhelmed them with a sense of they are unclean. And just putting the temple back in place wasn't going to fix it. God's calling them to something deeper. The great danger for these people was to think that the repair of the temple was an end to itself. And what we want to remember is their obedience to building the temple. Joe reminded us last week that as God showed his both kindness and severity to the people, the response was faith and obedience, which led them to work on the temple. 
They saw the goodness of God. They saw the majesty of God. And they responded in faith by being obedient to what God had called them to do. That was the right order. And that is the order of the gospel. The temple, though, was not to become a substitute for God. There's something greater than a building at stake here. We can't take this out of context. Because what is happening here is God doesn't just say, stop building the temple. He says, build the temple. But this is what he wants you to know. Look at verse 15. Now consider, if you get one word from the book of Haggai, take the word consider. Over and over and over, we hear the word consider. This call to stop, to think, to ponder, to look at our hearts, to look at our actions, to look at our lives. Haggai is continually, God is continually calling them to introspection, looking upon themselves. What is their motivation? What are they doing? How are they doing it? What is going on? Considering their ways. But God says this, now consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? What was going on? Before I called you back to obedience, what was going on? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, big pile of wheat, going to make some bread, only half of it was there. When you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you with all the products of your toil and blight with mildew and hail, yet you did not turn. God was the one who was bringing this blight on them because their hearts had gone away and God was using it as a way to get their attention. And God says, even that did not get your attention. And now you're here and you've started building and you're starting to think that having this temple here is going to fix everything. Can I tell you, it's not the temple, it's your heart. You need a new heart, but listen to me. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, write it on the calendar. Write it down, this day. Is the seed in the barn? You've got no vine, you've got no fig tree, no pomegranate, no olive trees, but I'm going to bless you. You know what? It had been easy if God had said, look out to the fields. Look at those vineyards that are so full of grapes. You'll know that you'll have wine for years. Look at the wheat that just covers the hills. You know that everyone will have bread aplenty. Look at the olive trees that are so loaded down with olives. You will have oil for everything. And people would have said, oh, yeah. Man, look at all that God has done. Yeah, we can trust him. God says, look at the barren land. Look at olive trees that have nothing. Look at vineyards that haven't even been planted. I'm telling you that I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to provide for you that I am your God and I am for your good. Will you believe even though you can't see it right now? Will you believe? And for a lot of us, we want to see the results before we believe. And God says, that's not faith. That's just living in what's already there. You see, God was calling them to trust in his promises. And if they're already so tempted to trust in this building to make everything right, God has to really get their attention and say, this building is going to fix it. I am going to fix it. And I'm going to provide for you. And let's take it one step further. Let's don't take this out of context. Because at the end of the chapter, God goes even further. He says, call Zerubbabel. 
I got a message for him. I'm about to overthrow everything. I'm about to shake the nations. I'm about to overthrow a horse and rider. And Zerubbabel, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set you as a signet ring. What in the world is that talking about? Well, a signet ring is what a king would wear. And so when a king would make a decree, he would put a seal and wax with his signet ring, and that was evidence that it was of the king. It was his. It was a promise that would be kept. And what God is doing here, we could preach an entire sermon on this, but I'm going to get straight to the point. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have rebelled and turned against God. And God made a promise that he is going to send a deliverer who will crush the head of Satan. The one who epitomizes temptation and rebellion against God. And then God later tells Abraham that one of his descendants was going to come. And through him, every nation would be blessed. And he later tells his descendants that there's a king who's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And then God promises David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. He will be the mightiest king, the greatest king. All the nations will flock to him. And when the people go into exile, the line of David goes into exile with them. And it looks like these promises that God has made from the beginning of time to fix everything that's gone wrong with people, it looks like those promises may have failed. And God pulls up Zerubbabel and he says, I'm about to do something. I'm going to set you as a signet ring and you will be a symbol to all that I will keep my promises, not just to give you bread and wine and oil, but I will redeem you from your lawlessness. God will keep his promise to send the Messiah and the Deliverer. And God right here shows them he's not just worried about taking care of them physically. He is that, but he is also even more concerned to take care of them spiritually. And the promises he made rooted in and of himself, not in anything we have done, not in anything that we are, not in anything we bring to the table, but God himself, he reminds again, I will keep my promises. And so now we're sitting here with the people and we have to say, Will we have faith? Will they believe? Will they continue in obedience, knowing that there are promises coming? When we start thinking about how this might apply to us, we got to just be honest. It just seems weird. We don't have priests. We don't have sacrificial systems. We're not building a temple. We're, I mean, we have a building soon, but we're not building a temple. We're not doing all of this. God hasn't called us to do some of these things. And so when we look at this, we can honestly think, man, I just don't know if that has anything to do with me in 2017 at all. But the fact of the matter is, we face the same danger that the people of Israel Because the thing is, we have better technology, we may know more, we can communicate better, we can do all of these things, and no matter what humankind has done, no matter how our culture has grown or changed or become better, no matter what new technology we have, the exact same problem resides in our heart as resided in their heart. And the same answer for them is the same answer for us, and the same danger for them is the same danger for us. We run the risk of substituting something other than God as our object of faith. For some people, that's just in how good they are. They've done enough good stuff. and They're trusting in that. For some people, especially here in the South, it's just church membership. I go to church. Ergo, I am okay. I'm trusting in that. I'm trusting in an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours if you're really spiritual on Sunday morning, 
checkbox, I'm good. Now, that's what I'm trusting in. Some people have been baptized, and they're saying, that is what I'm trusting in. Some people have a grandfather who was a deacon or a grandmother who played the organ or they grew up in in a church, and because of that, they're trusting. Am I saying these are bad things? No, I'm not saying these are bad things. These are good things. These are things that we celebrate. These are things of the Lord. But if that is what you're trusting in, you will come up short. You are just like the people of Israel, trusting that having a temple in their midst would make everything okay. And God calls us out of that and says, don't trust in things, trust in me. We, like the people in Haggai's day, need a cleansing. And this only comes from the gospel. Hebrews 9. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? To serve the living God. We are purified to serve. So what does this do for us? Well, there's four things that I want to kind of give you application-wise in closing. First thing is this. It helps us to fight the separation of Jesus from the rest of our lives. And what I mean by that is there's a tendency for a lot of people to have the family part, the work part, the leisure part, the weekend part, the friends part, the social media part, and then over here is the Jesus part. And the hopes is that by having a Jesus part, it may leak some kind of something into these other parts and make them okay, but they kind of keep Jesus over here separate from everything else. And what I want to say is, if that's, if that's the way you view life, I, I want to ask you for a moment just to consider whether or not you've truly understood and believed the gospel. Because the gospel is, is that Jesus is God himself who gave himself for you to redeem you from lawlessness, to redeem you from the penalty of sin and the corruption that relies within. And he is Lord of the universe. You do not make him Lord. He does not become Lord. He is Lord. And when you have trusted the gospel, you have submitted your life to him. And by life, I mean every minute of every day of every second whether you're at work, whether you're with your family, whether you're in class, whether you're driving down the road, whether you're shopping at Target, or whether you're standing in line somewhere. All of it belongs to Jesus if you have trusted the gospel. And so if we've divided Jesus out to just be a part of our life, a segment that may bump up against the other segments, but doesn't truly hold sway over every aspect of our life, I plead with you, And I beg of you to ask yourself, have you truly trusted the gospel? Have you truly trusted in Christ? Because if you have trusted in Christ, he is the Lord of your life. Romans chapter 6 says we are slaves to righteousness. Paul introduces himself in almost all of his letters as a slave or servant of Jesus Christ. He is his to do his bidding at all times. Have you trusted the gospel? God is not a trinket or a good luck charm. 
He is the sovereign, omnipotent creator of all. He is the Lord of the angel armies, the great conqueror and defeater of death and sin. He is majestic and holy, and at his presence all darkness flees. He gave himself for us, though we have all rebelled and greatly rebelled greatly and fully against him. He is God. This is why Paul continually reminds us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Second thing it does is this. The call of faith is obedience. So James chapter 2, verse 17 says, faith without works is dead. So what that means is, is if we have truly believed, we will obey. Now, we are a gospel-centered, gospel-saturated people. And we fight every week to help you know that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn the love of God. No good works make you better. No bad works make you worse. It is all the sovereign love of God for you. But the danger is, is that the concentration is that we will not remember and we will not call to mind that genuine faith in God results in obedience. God has not given us suggestions. God has not given us hints and tips. God has not given us ideas we might want to consider. God has given us commands. And not just in the Old Testament, mind you. In the New Testament. Beginning to end, God has given commands. And can I tell you something? God is a good God. Better than we can imagine. Holy, pure, loving, and he is for us. And the heart of faith recognizes that if God says I should do this, even if my sinful heart may say I don't feel like it or I don't know if I want to, the heart of faith recognizes if God says this, he is for me and he is for my good. And so this command is for my good, so I want to obey. And if God says don't do this, then I know that God loves me more than I love myself. And if he says don't do this as much as I want to do it, I know that it is for my downfall and it will bring me great harm. And so I will trust God and I will obey and not do that. That is the heart of faith. That's what James, when he's talking about this faith without works, the works give evidence that you've truly believed and trusted the gospel. Not because you're trying to earn something, but because you recognize how great and wonderful God is. That was what was going on here. The people in Haggai's day, they heard God. God was reminding them of his goodness and kindness and calling them to obedience. Not so they'd make themselves clean. He reminded them they were, they were unclean. They needed to be cleansed. And he has done that for us, and so he calls us to obey ourselves. Third thing is this, is it helps us to have a greater view of sin. Our sin is more pervasive than we realize. And for a lot of people, we feel like we've not done the biggies, so we're okay. So we haven't killed anybody. We've not, you know, committed extortion. We're not a member of the mob. We're not, anyway, we, you know, those are, the, those, are, those are the evil ones, right? You know, this whole pride thing or maybe the little slip of the tongue here and there or the bitter thoughts that are inside my head. Those aren't as big of a deal, right? Because, I mean, who did they really hurt? And the problem is, is not the size of the sin. It's the size of our God. 
And those small sins that we want to put away as if they're no big deal are an affront to the glory and the holiness of God. And what we say when we just tolerate those and think, ah, oh, they're no big deal, is that, God, you're no big deal. You're not worthy. You're not worthy of me cleaning up the way I talk. You're not worthy of me cleaning up the way I think. You're not worthy of this small part of my life. You're worthy of me not killing somebody, but you're not worthy of me X, Y, Z. And what we see from this is that our sin is so much more pervasive than we realize. And can I tell you that this is just another picture of the kindness of God towards us, that he would bring these things out? God doesn't bring up our sin just to beat us down about it, beat us down about it. He has already fully poured out his wrath on Christ against every sin we would ever commit. So then why does God point it out? Why does God show it to us? Because he knows the pollution of sin keeps us from drawing near to him the way that we should. And so he brings it out so that we might repent, we might turn from it and turn back towards him. That's what he was doing. He was calling the people of Haggai's day, turn from your sin and turn to obedience. Come near to me. Book of James tells us what? If you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. The last thing is this, is that when we get all of this, it changes our worship. Not just worship on Sunday morning. I'm I'm not saying that, that we get this so we sing louder. Maybe we do. But this changes Monday afternoon or Tuesday morning or Wednesday lunch meetings or Thursday late at night or Friday out with your friends or Saturday in the yard. It changes everything because it recognizes who God is and it wants to live a life that shows the world he is worth more than they could ever ask or imagine. And our response is a response of worship. That's what it does here. I'm going to ask Stephen to come. We're about to transition into a time of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is another picture that God has given us to teach us and to remind us and to set our hearts back on him. So as we go into this time of Lord's Supper, I'm going to ask those of you who are followers of Christ, who have repented from your sin and trusted in the gospel, we want to invite you to join with us to celebrate and remember what our Lord has done. And if you're not a follower of Christ, you've not turned from your sin, you've not placed your faith in him, first and foremost, I want to plead with you that you would do so. God in his kindness has brought you here this morning that you might hear the hope of the gospel, that you might know that though you've rebelled against God, he loved you and sent Christ to fully pay the price for your sin, that you might be brought near to him. And he calls you to turn and place your faith in him this morning. But if you're not a follower of Christ, we ask that you just observe and see the picture that God paints for you of the hope of the gospel. I'm going to pray, and Stephen will lead us in a song. During the song, the elements are at the front. There's juice and wine and bread. If you will get the elements, return to your seat, and we will take them together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you never stop pursuing after us. When our hearts grow cold, when we are satisfied with the pollution of sin that is in our lives, and we okay to leave it there you come after us and send your spirit to 
bring us back. We are grateful and stand in awe of what matchless grace this is. And Father, we pray that you would move us to be a people who respond obediently to the gospel, who live in such a way that your word is central to our hearts and our minds, and it moves our feet and moves our mouths and moves our hands to be people who are obedient. So Lord, we pray that as we enter into this time of remembering what you've done, that you would satisfy us, and that as we feast on memories of Christ, that you would spiritually empower us to live for you. We love you and ask in Christ's name.